Before I continue with the teaching I've been giving you, I would like to interject where this teaching is coming from. It is possible that some of you already know that, then it is a reminder. And if you don't know it, it may be important to know it. After the Buddha's Parinibbana, can you come nearer? After the Buddha's Parinibbana, the first great council of Arahants took place three months later. And at that time, his teaching was sort of systemized and put into somewhat of an order because naturally, while he was alive, he was teaching according to the occasion which arose very often in answer to questions. And at that time, religious teaching was always an oral transmission. So it was orally transmitted from him to his disciples. And at the first great council of Arahants, Ananda, who had been his attendant for 25 years, recited the suttas, the discourses. Upali recited the Vinaya, the rules of the order of monks and nuns. And while they were reciting, the discourses were put in a sort of an order, long ones, middle-length ones, numbered ones, and thematic ones. Diganikaya, Majjhimanikaya, Anguttara Nikaya, and Samyutta Nikaya. Nikaya means collection. Majjhima is middle, Diga is long, Samyutta is thematic, Anguttara is numbered. Four of this, five of that, and so on. There are approximately 17,500 discourses of the Buddha which were transmitted. About 100 years later, the Second Council of Arahants took place. The reason was that they were called together that there were differences of opinion <coughs> as usual, particularly about the Vinaya, the rules of the order. And some bhikkhus said this, and some bhikkhus said that. Nowhere ever are in these, on these occasions any nuns mentioned, although they must have still existed at that time. So in that second council, 100 years later, 
differences of opinion arose and different schools arose because of that. There was already a split, a schism in the Sangha. And out of that arose the need to finalize one day the whole of this transmission so that there wouldn't be all these differences of opinion. Of course, it didn't help at all, but <laughs> the idea was that this would help. So 250 years later, after his Paranibbana, the third great council of Arahants took place. Now, at that time, there were three disciples of Ananda, Mughalana, and Sariputta, still alive, one each. These were the three great disciples of the Buddha. One, the attendant, and Mughalana and Sariputta, I think you're pronouncing their names differently in Sanskrit, were the right-hand and left-hand disciple of the Buddha, and one each disciple was still alive. Disciples. Disciples. Uh, they were uh, over a hundred years old, of course, and but the the uh, tradition says that these three were there, which would help to authenticate that that what was written down at that time was really what the Buddha said. Now, it was written down in what is today Sri Lanka, then Ceylon. Pali has no alphabet. It was written down in Singhalese, in the Pali language, but in the Singhalese alphabet. Now, if we want to read Pali, we can read it in the Roman alphabet. There is no alphabet for the language. At that time, King Asoka, the great Buddhist king of India, had sent his son, the Venerable Mahinda, to Ceylon, to bring Buddhism to Ceylon. And the king of Ceylon at that time readily adopted it, and the bhikkhus of Ceylon took it upon themselves, there were many bhikkhus very quickly after Mahinda came, took it upon themselves to write down this Pali canon that we call the Pali canon. It was called the T Pitika. T is three, Pitika is basket. It's called the Three Baskets, and this is its, actually its real name. And the reason for that is that it was written down on ola leaves. And the ola leaves are not like books, but they were being carried around in baskets. And in three different ones. <laughs> one for suttas, one for vinaya, and one for abhidhamma. So they were being kept apart. To this day, there are a few pages of the original Ola leaves to be found in Ceylon. They are being kept in airtight compartment, and if one is very lucky, one has one is able to get a glimpse. They're of course crumbling and falling to bits. However, every year since that time, the bhikkhus of Sri Lanka have copied on ola leaves, the original ola leaves, because naturally ola leaves crumble and fall, f 
fall apart. And in this tradition, one could also, one has of course printed it on, in books also, but it is a matter of pride for the bhikkhus of the monastery where Mahinda first preached on a rock to copy the original ola leaves year after year so that there's always a, an ola leaf containing the whole Tipitika available. And they're being kept in cupboards, walls and walls of cupboards, <coughs> as many of them as they can keep, so that uh, I have seen about 300 years' worth of ola leaves. I think before that, they have all crumbled to bits. Now, from the time that this was done in Sri Lanka, which was approximately 250 BC, the written transmission has always been supported and uh, helped by the oral transmission. You know yourself that reading a book is not the same as hearing something. So the oral transmission, particularly for a spiritual practice, is extremely important. And the oral transmission from 250 BC until today has gone on from Arahant to disciple and continues on today. You can, for instance, think about that there have always been Arahants in the jungle forests of Sri Lanka, here and there, dotted here and there. And even today, we can find them. When you hear this, what I'm teaching you, this is an oral transmission. And in order to get the benefit of an oral transmission, one needs to listen with heart and mind. We've got both of them. We've got to use them. The mind alone conceptualizes. The heart opens up to hear the meaning behind the word. Each word is a concept. If the mind alone does it, each concept can be twisted totally out of shape. We have minds that are magicians, and we are perfectly capable of twisting everything out of shape. The teaching of the Buddha is like an enormous map showing a vast landscape. And it has a beginning and end, this map, namely a, a roadway, how to get from here to there. It was his unique gift and also his instruction that this map should be offered and made available to anyone who wants it. Naturally, having not traversed the whole of the map, one cannot possibly know whether that which is ahead of oneself is true or not. There's only one way of approaching that which one has not experienced, and that is by opening up heart 
and mind and hearing whether the truth is there in the heart one can hear that if one can't then the conceptual thinking and the logical conclusions will twist the whole thing any which way one wants it and when one twists it and turns it one has no benefit whatsoever this is one of the greatest jewels humanity has a teaching that old and that true and tried it's been tried over and over again and has brought the same results to everyone who's tried it naturally there are other schools that have developed they developed a hundred years after before even a hundred years after the buddha's parinibbana this happens always when the spiritual master is no longer there and holds it together and they are using some of their own teachers great teachers uh, instructions there's nothing wrong with that what we have however are the original words and these original words are the basis for all schools and the oral transmission is the main way of gaining access to something which is so overpoweringly um, effective in changing dukkha to sukha and one should be very careful to really find that access to it in the heart it is not only the practice the buddha uh, said pariyati pati pati study and practice so it is the knowing of the words which give us the direction and it is then adhering to the word with open heart and mind and doing it naturally it's much easier to say it than to do it and it takes much less time to say it because within the scope of these seven days including tonight's talk i will have told you one of the most effective discourses of the buddha how to go from dukkha to liberation can we do it in seven days the buddha said we can in the satipatthana sutta which is possibly the most well-known sutta that has been transmitted to us this is the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness sati is mindfulness patana are the foundations satipatthana sutta the buddha says if one practices mindfulness for seven years one will definitely have the result either of arahantship or non-returner and then he said nay not even for seven years six years five years four years three years two years one year even for 11 months 10 months nine months eight months seven months six months five months four months three months two months one month then he said nay even for seven days but that means mindfulness in its completion perfection practicing mindfulness in its perfection brings one 
to the result that this practice is to bring, as he says, in seven days. It's unusual to say the least, to do it in seven days, but it is possible to explain it in seven days. And that explanation is nothing else except a practice path. And the practice path contains everything that is needed to gain liberation. One time there is a story in the canon about the Buddha taking a walk with the monks in the forest and picking up a handful of leaves and saying to the monks, monks, what is greater, the leaves on the trees or the leaves in my hand? And the monks said, well, sir, the leaves on the trees are, of course, far greater than what you have in your hand. And the Buddha said, that's right. What I have taught you is like the leaves in my hand, but it is perfectly sufficient to attain liberation. It can be expressed even in so short a period as this, as we have been here. Of course, the Buddha expressed it in 45 years of teaching, from the age of 35 to the age of 80 when he died. But what he expressed in those 45 years was very often a repetition. It's not that all suttas bring a totally new aspect, a very often repetitive, because he wasn't talking to the same people twice. He was always talking to somebody else. The authenticity of the Tipitika can be seen in one aspect which I find most interesting, namely that in the suttas, most of them, the names of the people who were present are mentioned, the place where the sutta was being taught, and very often these people uh, come back many times and their qualities and character is described so that one gets to know them a little. In fact, there are several people mentioned in the Pali Canon with whom one can actually feel as if one knows them. They're so well described. The suttas all start out with the words evam me suttam, which means thus have I heard. And this is Ananda speaking at the first great council of Arahants. And after he has said, thus have I heard, he goes on to say where he has heard it and who else was there to hear it. The name, the mention of the names of the people who were there was meant to be an assurance that he is telling it right, that he's not making mistakes because those people could be asked then and say, well, you know, what this fellow is saying, is that correct? So this is one way of assuring the correctness of what is being said and then later on written down. It is very important to feel in oneself 
an enormous surge of gratitude and joy to be one of the few very privileged people on this earth who are able to hear the oral transmission of the Buddha's teaching, the Satcha Dhamma, the true Dhamma, considering the fact that there are four or more billion people on this planet, how many have the opportunity to hear this Dhamma? The karma that we have made must have been able to bring us to that point. The joy and gratitude should be the two factors which make it possible to open one's heart to the teaching. The mind alone won't do it. It never has done it and never will do it. Meditation is always connected with the experience and the experience always generates from the feeling. This is, I think, an important aspect of where the transcendental dependent arising comes from. Just one of the discourses of the Digha Nikaya, the long collection, and has a history of great importance. There is another tradition in this um, transmission a tradition of simplicity. The Buddha himself was a prince and lived what was in those days in great luxury and found that all the indulgences which he was um, being offered and the luxury in which he lived did not bring him happiness. Now that aspect of it can be compared to our Western society. We have usually all the luxuries and indulgences that are uh, available anywhere. He didn't think that, he didn't feel that this brought him the true understanding of reality. So then when he left the palace, he became an ascetic and mortified his body for six years. That too didn't bring the desired result. So he then, after having become enlightened, said that neither indulgence nor asceticism are the right way. It should be the middle path. The middle path always to be one of simplicity, the necessities, but nothing more. And this simplicity also reaches out into the teaching. There is very little in this tradition of any specific ritual concerned with teaching. In fact, there's none concerned with teaching. And there are no way, no um, instructions of using any elaborations 
other than the bare necessity how to get from here to there. Naturally, far more can be said than what can be said in seven days because instructions are far more than that. But this particular sutta, which I choose quite deliberately uh, to teach you, because this is a monastic community and should be able to get the greatest benefit from a sutta which is so direct and contains all the aspects that are needed. Besides that, there would be many other instructions that the Buddha gave, but there is a limit to what one can talk about. This particular one has a content which is suitable for this environment because it contains also the ultimate reality to which we haven't come yet. Again and again, all his suttas, bow none, are graduated teaching, all of them. There is not a single sutta to be found where he doesn't start out with our ordinary experience, just like this one, starts out with dukkha, which is our ordinary everyday experience whether we know it or not. And where he gradually gives the instructions how to gain access to liberation, to freedom. The Karniya Metta Sutta, which is a very well-known one, the Loving-Kindness Sutta, starts out with states of mind that we all have and know and ends up with liberation. There are I could give many examples, but it's not useful because I cannot discuss all these suttas. This is an aspect of the teaching which shows us quite clearly that these suttas which we have in our transmission have been said and given by the same person. They all have that same um, graduation in it, they all have that same aspect of starting with where we're at and going to where we'd like to be. And giving the instructions very often in a very terse and pithy manner. At times so short and lacking in a detail that the people who heard it went to Sariputta and asked him for elaboration. This is uh, very often found in the canon also that the original sutta is given by the Buddha, the elaboration by Sariputta. Sariputta was known as the monk with the greatest wisdom and the greatest ability to analyze. And very often, at the end of the sutta, we can find that the people listened to everything Sariputta said and then went back to the Buddha to find out whether it was really so. And the Buddha always uh, supported what Sariputta had said. The Buddha often, um, especially in later years, did that 
and one could possibly imagine that either the questioners were people where he thought that they might not yet have the open heart for the Dhamma or that he had been uh, getting ill and tired. No matter how ill or tired he was in his later years, he taught every single day. And that in itself, I think, is a remarkable feat, at least from where I stand. To continue with the um, transcendental dependent arising, I should like to go back, backtrack a little bit, and just recapitulate that it told us about three states of being, first one dukkha, which we all have, and the arousing of faith, and thereby the joy which is possible to have. The joy which I have just described as the gratitude and happiness which can arise in one when one realizes to, that one has the good fortune to be able to listen to true Dhamma. That joy. And then the meditative steps from the first to the eighth absorption meditative absorptions, rupa and arupa jhanas. And from then on, the path to insight. Now, naturally, in this progression, we can see that the meditative absorption or the meditation as such is meant to be a precondition for insight because the meditative mind, the mind that has become calm and collected, is the kind of mind which can attain insight. The discursive, excited, aggressive, worried, problematic mind cannot possibly get near to insight. It is concerned with whatever it contains. Now, our minds can contain anything once we become master of the situation. We don't have to allow it any longer to contain negativities. However, the meditation precedes the insight. Now, if the meditation has come to the meditative absorption, the states of insight, which I described last night, are automatic and natural progression. It's a natural understanding that one sees the impermanence of all that has arisen, and it's a natural understanding that one sees that there is nobody there when there is a base of infinite consciousness or something of that order. However, we have already discussed that this path that is taught can also be trodden without the meditative absorptions, with momentary 
and neighborhood concentration, which eventually will also culminate in a meditative absorption. A past moment, which I will describe later tonight, has to be a jhanic moment. However, when the mind does not have that concentration ability, nor the wish to, it can still get insight, such as I described. But that is when, where I stopped last night, terror can arise and usually does. It is a step on this insight path, which does not happen to people who go into the absorption. A mind which is totally happy, totally peaceful, totally expandable, will not be able to experience terror. However, the mind that has not done that, but has concerned itself with insight, will experience terror. And it is a very important step on this insight path. Very often, the person who experiences it, well, feels first of all frightened by it, and secondly, can be uh, induced to stop the practice by this terror, or feels that something is wrong with them because they've heard all about these wonderful states that are possible and everything is one and, and the mind uh, is uh, uh, completely empty and all these wonderful things and there all of a sudden terror arises. It is natural. It's a natural progression. The Buddha's great gift of teaching lay in the fact of analysis, step-by-step -step progression, each step known, each step possible to take. If we don't know what we're doing, we're not going to get very far with it because whatever it is that we don't know about, we're either going to turn our back on it or we're going to sit in front of it puzzled. So this is a step and needs to be accepted as such because at that time the mind has seen the dissolution of all that arises, whether it is mind or matter. Mind or matter in Pali are called Nama Rupa. The word Nama is our English word the namer, that what names. When the mind is contacted, it starts naming. And rupa is all materiality, all corporality, but primarily, of course, body. So having seen that all this dissolves in the meditation and out of the meditation, because in the meditation no thought can be kept, it disappears, the breath disappears, the, uh, the body even in concentrated meditation disappears. Where is everything? Where am I? Nothing to hang on to. What am I doing this for? I thought I was going to get some happiness out of it. And all of a sudden all I'm getting is terror. And the person would like to step backward, back to a situation where it looked far more um, far more pleasant the whole thing but it's not possible we cannot step back from insight 
having had it, we've got it. So stepping back from the terror is not possible. We can always step forward. So the next step after having experienced the terror is to look at that which terrorizes one quite clearly and one sees that it is what are called all formations. Now here the word sankharas is used, which usually we use for thought or for karma formations, but it means all formations. Everything that arises is giving us terror because we cannot find this person that is trying so hard to get on the spiritual path and gain insight and gain liberation. We can't find that person. It's nowhere to be found. It's disappearing, dissolving also. So when we see that, we can get a very, very clear idea of the dangerous aspect of all formations. Namely, that there is danger in them, that everything that is formed, that exists, therefore, brings danger with it, not only because it dissolves all the time, but because it's constantly having an impeding quality. Yesterday I used the example of this house. It constantly has an impeding quality. It impedes on one's thought, on one's actions, on one's time, on one's energy, on one's uh, abilities. Everything that exists produces dukkha because of the fact that it has the aspect of arising, disappearing, having to be looked after. The impeding quality which everything has, which means that it has some uh, way of getting at us, also has the quality of signifying, which means the mind has to do something about it. Now we might in the first instance think, oh yes, the danger lies in rupa, in corporality, in having body in having these material aspects but there's no danger in mind it's all right that's maybe the first aspect of understanding but when we investigate this a little further we can experience the fact that the mind is not excluded from this because the mind has to constantly respond to everything that is happening so it's also constantly under pressure. The mind's under pressure, the body's under pressure. And then people say, oh, I'm feeling uh, pressured, I'm feeling um, uh, tense, I'm, I'm feeling um, uh, that I'm being, uh, that there's more asked of me than I can uh, actually accomplish. Well, naturally, the pressure that is there is constant because of all that comes at us and we've all been experiencing this for years on end but we've always thought we could get out of it some way going somewhere else dukkha is forgotten or at least it is covered over by moving so we think that we can get out of this pressure that is being put on us. But when we see quite clearly, after having had sufficient insight, because these are already 
very advanced insight stages that I'm talking about. There isn't very much left to do. There are very important steps left to do, but not that much. The long aspect of practice has already been done by that time. When we can see the danger in all that, that it arises constantly to uh, impede and, uh, and signify something for us, that it, there's something going on all the time which we have to react to, that we have to deal with, that we have to confront. When we see that, the terror subsides because we can see that that terror was actually justified. We no longer think this was a, was a, a crazy idea or anything like that, but we can see, yes, this is justified. It is, this is the way it is. I actually had a true experience. At such times, one should have a teacher because one can become extremely um, upset by it. Uh, this uh, practice of pure insight can be extremely upsetting. And the mind, the very few minds that will actually go along this way, because the mind will balk at all these insights. The pure insight way has a lot of dukkha in it. And that's why the Buddha again and again recommended to go through at least first and second jhana to give the mind this balance of happiness so that this terror and danger is nothing, the terror doesn't arise, but the danger is seen as something, as just a natural thing. Because the mind's quite happy to see the danger. It doesn't have any particular objection to seeing it. So now the terror has subsided and we have seen the danger in all formations. We are absolutely clear on it, that there is nothing to be gained by being here. And that's when the desire for deliverance arises. And that is the most significant point in the inside meditation in the insight arising, whether through pure insight or through the absorption and then the insight, doesn't matter which way. It comes to that point. The only thing we leave out when we do uh, the absorption is the terror. The everything else we have to do also. So we come to this point where the desire for deliverance arises. This desire for deliverance means we have seen quite clearly that existence has nothing to offer. Up to that time, most people, whether consciously or subconsciously, have thought that it would be quite sufficient if at least they wouldn't have to be reborn in any of the lower realms or possibly could get a rebirth in one of the higher realms, in the Deva realms. People think about the Deva and the Brahma realms as something like paradise, and uh, so it would be very nice to go to paradise. But at this time, whether one has thought this or not, it is quite clear that existence is always fraught with that same pressure, with that same uh, pressure for mind and body, whatever kind of body one may be having. So the desire for deliverance has with it what is called in Pali Samvega. Samvega is a very important aspect of one's mental makeup. It means urgency, to do it now. 
and procrastination is its enemy. And the Buddha termed it, coined it in this uh, phrase, he said, coined this phrase for that, he said, life is very uncertain, death is very certain. We don't know how long we're going to be here. It's not a matter of age. Anybody can die at any time. I know myself, several people who are over 90 years old and hale and hearty. And I know others who recently died at the age of 30 and even younger. And I think we all know such people. So we have absolutely no guarantee that we're going to be here. And the urgency arises when the desire for deliverance arises when we have seen the danger in all existence. That there is nothing to be found whether through the senses or through the mind or through the body that can give satisfaction, full and total fulfillment. It can give only momentary pleasure. And by that time we have long seen that momentary pleasure does not answer our quest. Because at this time what arises is disenchantment. Now, disenchantment is a conglomeration of the knowing the danger, the desire for deliverance. Disenchantment means we have seen what exists as no longer enchanting us. It is there. It can give pleasant feeling. There's no gainsaying that. Pleasant feeling just as impermanent as unpleasant feeling. And that's why when we do the meditative absorptions, we realize that these pleasant feelings that can arise there have already disappeared the minute the meditation is over. So you can see again and again how much easier it is to work with the absorptions and it doesn't have to be all eight. The first one already gives one a different quality of experience. So when we have disenchantment, which is called Nibida in Pali, we have come to the significant time in our practice. This is, so to say, the last item on the inside path. That what comes after brings us to the other shore. Now this disenchantment, at that time we have a sort of automatic investigation of all that we see and looking into the three characteristics, whether they actually are true in everything. It is not something deliberate at that time because the mind has gone through this, uh, possibly through the terror and seen the danger and has had the desire for deliverance. It now reflects whether it is really so, whether that all that has happened, namely wanting to get out, 
really wanting to get out and having this urgency to get out it now wants to reflect and make sure that what it has understood so far is correct and by wanting to do that it keeps on reflecting on the three characteristics impermanence dukkha and no self or qualifness and it keeps on reflecting in oneself in other people in all that one finds around one sometimes the mind goes to the elements to the primary elements but it has a sort of quality about it at that time the mind that it is not easily fooled anymore into believing that that what is happening around <coughs> is valuable important and needs to uh, continue because at that time the mind is so imbued with this desire for deliverance and the urgency to do it and has gone through a very difficult time with terror and danger that it really wants to make sure whether it has done it right now of course the teacher can say yes yes it's right it's fine but that doesn't really do the main work it is supportive and it is helpful if one has a teacher on hand that will say that but the real work has to be done by oneself and this is one of the most to me anyway fascinating aspects of this teaching it's a complete do it yourself job nobody can do anything for anybody the only thing that we get is a um, map and signposts and uh, we can get the instruction but the doing is all for ourselves so when we can when will the mind investigates these three characteristics all the time it naturally comes to the understanding yes it's true there is nothing else to be found except this impermanent nature of whatever one looks at everything that we can look at has impermanent nature everything that we can look at can therefore not be totally fulfilling because it won't stick around it won't stay around it disappears again and because it is impermanent and not fulfilling there can't be any core substance in it because if it is impermanent where is its substance what happens to it naturally it's most important to find that in oneself but it is also uh, very often the case that one investigates all that what is around one then it depends which one of the three one is most interested in all three are interconnected a person who has a lot of faith and confidence usually tries to work with impermanence because it is something that the mind can not only grasp easily but it is something that is uh, so prominent in the teaching and the confidence which has arisen in the teaching brings the mind automatically to impermanence a person who has a great deal of concentration usually likes to work with dukkha 
And a person who is more on the wisdom side likes to usually work with corelessness, substancelessness. And when we like to work, for instance, with the latter, with the corelessness, it is our own five khandas, which are our kamatana. The kamatana is the um, a ground of investigation, our working ground, like our um, workshop, kamatana. Kamatana is also the meditation subject, but it's also our working ground. So if we want to work with the substancelessness, the egolessness, the non-self, the void, whatever you like to call it in English, it doesn't matter. We get at our five khandas and we investigate each one and see whether we can find in it anything that has an enduring core, an enduring substance in it. Is there something that is enduring in the body and in the four aspects of mind sense consciousness feeling perception and the thought processes these are the four aspects of mind is there anything to be found of an enduring nature again and again at this time when disenchantment has arisen this is the investigative procedure because the mind wants to make absolutely sure that that what it has already resolved to do is correct. It has already seen that everything dissolves, but because that was also connected with a great deal of dukkha, now in its calm state of disenchantment, it wants to renew that understanding. And it is necessary, because only when we have that understanding within us, over and over again, will it become part of our nature. Only when we have investigated time and time again and come to the same conclusion that there is nothing and nobody who owns any of the khandas, there's no core, no substance, that all is void, that that we then come to the point where this is really our inner being, that we can relate to that at any time we want to. And this is also important to know that the mind will have in it where it turns to. When it turns to cooking, it will have cooking in it. When it turns to gardening, it will have gardening in it. But when it turns to true nature and has already gained this insight, it will know no substance. So, which means that in one's daily activities, the primary aspect of mind is mindfulness, bare attention. But on the inside path, the mind deals with that which it has already seen as truth. And the mind needs a lot of convincing. It's got to see it again and again. It isn't very common and certainly not mentioned in the Buddha's teaching that liberation of freedom arises like a flash. 
It's a slow and arduous process. It's slow and arduous and sometimes tedious and sometimes appears to take, make no progress at all. Just seems to be sitting there like a dead duck. <laughs> and other times it seems to progress quite quickly, so quickly that one would like to step back from it and say, no, wait a minute, not so fast. I'm not quite ready for all this. But one can't do that. It depends entirely upon karmic conditions. It depends on determination, depends on a lot of outer factors. But eventually, practicing will bring the mind to this point. This point, disenchantment, nibida, is the last step on the practice path. The next step is already the culmination of practice. The investigation can be called contemplation, it can be called introspection, it can be done at any time. It can be done during the meditation, it can be done while watching the ocean, it can be done while even just walking. Whenever the mind wants to turn to true nature, it will then reflect upon it because it has already a lot of momentum to do that. And this momentum is one of the very important aspects for the next step. But I will talk about that tonight, not too much all at once. And I hope that you have listened with your heart so that you can have the questions that come from heart and mind. Questions are important, very important, and they should contain one's own inner understanding. And they also are, of course, to, are to be a help on the path. They're supposed to help on the path. Nothing that doesn't help one on the path can really be important at this point. So I hope you have some good questions. that the ears, the 
sound and that which is heard or that which makes a sound. But those things are, are dependently arising. And another insight beyond that would then be that you know, those are inseparable. And thus my question, how you could separate mind from matter. I think I have answered your question already during this talk. I think there's nothing left uh, unsaid and uh, I hope that this talk has helped you to understand it better. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe the next one will help even more. That answers your question. Well, that there's a pathway, and that on each step on the, of the of the path, something different arises in your insight. That's all. The pathway, the graduated path, and something arises. So that's what I think has answered your question already. Yes. Where am I? (laughs) Yes. I kind of follow what you said that, uh, or what you are saying is that analysis has its place, but uh, you you take it step further and it's different. Yes. Herod, did you have your hand up? This is going to be a question that that's concerning monks and nuns, I think, because I don't want to, to start into to branch off into something like, well, what about um, living in society? And talking about like where we are now, just the process that. So, so people don't get upset and so finally about it. Um, That's nice. Um, I think for all of us, even though insight is advanced, for all of us, to some extent, we've had this process of feeling that um, things are just not satisfactory and that projects that we have like to create ourselves a identity of various sorts and to have various endeavors and things of that just they, they can happen because of karma and because of one's whatever but we don't want them and we end up you know even though we have different personalities we end up here um, and we sort of trimmed ourselves down to such a point that um, that it's, it's very there but what I'm trying to ask is, what's, what's your just what's your opinion of what a monastery is, what a what a, a nun or a monk is, and um, what I'm really asking is that I think things get very depressing. I mean, 
this, this time of the year is very lovely because because there's lots of sunshine and and, and like today. Well, like today, <laughs> and, and the elements are sort of nice, you know, yeah. lots of greenery and things are going. But most of the time it's winter here and it's, it's rather dreary. Mm. And and I'm, I myself lose um, heart, and that usually results in my having uh, quarrelsome or whatever, whatever mm. reaction. So I'm going to ask you about. Um, I can't really ask it from a past viewpoint because it, it, the material gets very advanced. So I'll just ask it in sort of a general point. Yes. Well, y- your question was, uh, what what is a monk or nun all about? Huh? That sort of thing. Basically. Yes. Well, I think as their job, they have to attain nibbana by the means that they have on hand, which are given to them through their teachers. And uh, these means uh, of attaining Nibbana need to uh, contain a change in their personality. Because a personality that is useful in the marketplace is totally useless in the monastery. The marketplace personality is one which wants to be right, which is aggressive, which wins a point, which uh, knows better, uh, which gains something and uh, has uh, become something more. So that kind of personality is totally useless in the monastery. And what you then find are uh, difficulties of the human relationship. What you need in a monastery is primarily a very Christian orientated quality, humility. (laughs) It's one of the main qualities that is needed in order to live together. Because the people who come together in a monastery are all very different. And uh, they have actually nothing in common, nothing at all. Other than just a desire for getting out of the mess. That's all. And they're not even quite sure in their minds what the mess is. That the mess is in their own mind, that is only something they find out later. So the first thing that is very important in a monastery is the humility of all people there, that they can constantly learn from each other and from anything that arises and not try to be um, cleverer than someone else. That's the first thing. And the second thing that is also very important, and I think this is something that can be helped by doing loving-kindness meditation um, as often as possible together, is to realize everybody's dukkha. Everybody has dukkha. And therefore, to be able to extend one's love and compassion towards these other people who are there. Everybody has lots and lots of dukkha. And this dukkha in a monastery is far greater than in the marketplace. Because there you hear you don't have the television set, you don't have the uh, distractions that in the ordinary place you can have. Now the dukkha in the marketplace is the same size than it is here. But here you know it better. You are far more aware of the dukkha. So it has to be counteracted with 
this love and compassion towards each other. And one mustn't wait, and this is a very important point from my own experience, one mustn't wait for others to give one metta because one hasn't got it then when somebody else is giving it. One must give it oneself. And giving it oneself means that one has it in one's own heart. And when one has it in one's own heart, then even the dreary winter and uh, the uh, tedious <laughs> practice looks far nicer. You must believe it. <laughs> I live in the opposite. I live in an almost unbearable heat. Oh, but all the year? All year round. Almost unbearable. Yeah. And at times really unbearable. And uh, so the uh, same applies. Absolutely the same. Uh, it isn't... Um, I'm not... Um, these are exact, exactly the experiences I think that everybody has. So, humility towards each other, humility towards everyone, which is one of the most important aspects because you see the mind, the conceptual mind, as I said at the beginning of my talk, it twists and turns. It makes everything sound right which is wrong. And then if somebody doesn't want to get into that kind of thing, then you've won a point. Well, so what? What are you going to do with that point? Add it to some more points? I mean, it's not going to help anything, is it? All you have done is made, made yourself an enemy, probably. But if, if that is one thing, the humility, and the second thing is the metta, the loving kindness and compassion, by realizing that this dukkha that I'm, ha I'm having is not a monopoly, that everybody is having it. They may be sitting there with a grinning face, but it isn't, it isn't that they don't have dukkha. They all have dukkha, everybody has. So doing loving-kindness meditation helps one to arouse that feeling for the other people so that the togetherness becomes one of helpfulness to each other. If one isn't helpful to each other, life in the monastery is extremely difficult, very difficult. One has to have a support system until one is enlightened. There has to be a support system. And you see, even the Buddha, he had Ananda as his attendant. That was his support system. It wasn't emotional, but it was certainly physical. So while we are not enlightened, we need a support system that is both, and particularly emotional, an emotional support system. And if one can't have that with the people that one lives with, life becomes almost impossible has to be that kind of support with each other, which means that one can quite honestly talk about one's own difficulties without having to expect that somebody is going to make something of it or going to you know, use it as a weapon at a later time so that one can live together like a, um, well, <laughs> like a loving family. <laughs> <laughs> Like a, like a loving family. <laughs> because, but even families, when there is strife in a family, they support each other. They are usually a family, I mean, generally speaking, there are always exceptions, 
But in a family, even when they have strife with each other, and there's no reason why one shouldn't have uh, uh, some uh, um, this, um, uh, yeah, even, well, even arguments, as long as they don't become uh, nasty. But the support system is there. The emotional support system in a family is there. And that emotional support system needs to be in a monastery. And it is, uh, I, I think, well, I haven't been there, I shouldn't talk about it. I think there is a place where they have it, but I haven't been there, so maybe I shouldn't say that because it's not, you know, I'm not sure. Um, another thing which I have seen to be helpful in a monastery, which I think does not apply to your tradition, is hierarchy. We do it uh, very much in our tradition. Yeah, and it has to be adhered to. Because if there's hierarchy, you've got to be polite, no matter how nasty you feel. And politeness is the first instance of loving kindness. It doesn't matter what happens. Got in a hierarchy, you must have politeness. And the hierarchy in our tradition is the length of having worn the robe. Uh, I don't know what is in, in your tradition, but how long you've had the robes, that's, that's who's in charge. And um, it is a very important aspect because it brings with it the uh, aspect of not only politeness, but also a certain manner of dealing with each other, which we have greatly lost in the West, because in the family it used to be. There used to be a system like that, but people have rebelled against it because it was often abused, that system. It has, a, it has its nature of being abused. So we don't have much of that as a, as a, um, a model to follow and especially a Western monastery in the Buddhist tradition that has no model to follow. So this is difficult. But the hierarchical tradition has its root in the Buddha's words at his Parinibbana. Because the monks at that time asked the Buddha, now that our teacher is dying, whom, who shall be uh, the head of the Sangha? And the Buddha said, there is no head of the Sangha. The one who has worn the robe the longest is the one that you are listening to. And he will be your superior. So this hierarchy is rooted in the words of the Buddha in the Parinibbana Sutta. You can find it there. And they are a great help in dealing with each other in a manner which is always polite and has a certain grace to it, uh, it's helpful. If it's abused, it's useless, but that's not very likely. So it, it has a helpful aspect. But the support system is needed for everyone, emotional support. The loving kindness has to be practiced over and over and over and over and not waiting for somebody else to do it. Always doing it yourself. Because when, when you say to somebody, as happens very frequently, 
you don't love enough or you don't love me enough or you don't have enough metta, the only answer to that is if you want to feel metta, you've got to have it yourself. What the other person is doing is totally uninteresting for your own heart. And then the humility of not wanting to gain but wanting to learn and not wanting to be somebody but to learn to be nobody. That's the ultimate um, uh, result of good practice, to be nobody. So I think these are the most important points I can think of. I may think of something else at a later time and I'll let you know. Yes. I came on the second to last insight of the danger of all formations. 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 Mm. Would that be mental constructs or mm. everything? Everything. Everything that is formed. Everything. Okay. Um, are you going to talk tomorrow about uh, the difference in perceiving those uh, mental formations when we are enlightened and this insight of seeing them as dangerous? Well, I will talk about the next step tonight, huh? Oh, tonight. Yes. And uh, the next step leads to the other shore. Uh-huh. Are they still seen as dangerous from the other shore? There is no danger at all, because you have seen where the freedom is, because you have given up trying to hang on to them. You see, the danger lies in the fact of owning them and wanting to keep them. That's the danger. Once you've given up owning them and wanting to keep them, there's no danger. All you have to wait is for this body to break up. And so you said that you realize that the danger is valid. Mm. Yeah, then the terror was valid. The terror was valid. Yeah. Both are valid. Uh-huh. But from the other shore we may see that it is invalid? No, no. They're valid as points along the practice. Uh-huh. Um, again, you know, the, uh, the graduated path of practice brings you along those steps. And uh, uh, anyone who has experienced it knows that. I mean, every experience that arises along the path is a step on the way. Naturally, once you come to the other shore, then uh, you realize that uh, this was only something that brought you there. You know, like having a great deal of dukkha. You know, if you have a great deal of dukkha, it, it brings you to the meditation pillow. Well, becoming enlightened, you think, well, what the heck did I ever worry about? But it certainly brought you there. Hmm? So the terror and the danger are steps that bring you further, you know, if you deal with them properly. Because here we are still in a situation where we can fall off. Up to this point we can still fall off. One step more and we can't. No, no, uh, getting the other shore. I'll, I'll talk about it tonight.
Okay, so just to reiterate, the danger is that, uh, what would you say? Owning uh-huh. and wanting to keep. Either owning your own formations, which are the five khandas, or wanting to remain and to keep and to be and to become and uh, wanting this. Those are the dangers. So it experiences some sort of hassle, irritation? Oh, yes. 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 You see, the movement, I think I've said that to you already, the movement itself, everything that moves has irritation. It can never be peaceful. It always has an impinging quality and it always has a signifying quality. The impinging quality is that it does something to you, right? And the signifying quality means that the mind has to do something about it. There's never peace because it's always moving. And you know how the thoughts are, keeps moving, so that is the irritation, yes. Signifying? Signifying quality, that's a, a word that's used for the mind constructs, as you call them, yes. Something signifies, something is uh, giving a signal, and the mind goes, ah, and does something. Okay. I wanted to say something about this carrot that we talked about. It. Um, Well, in uh, working with students over the years as meditation instructor, it's something that people have often described to me. And uh, then if I describe to you, I also, for the last two years, have had this reoccurring week, like in the middle of the night. So, um, so just sort of to make it experiential, John, like you're asking, because I've been actually working with this as a major thing for a long time. And what I found is that um, it can occur spontaneously. The terror? Yes, as a recognition, as an actually true recognition of things that they are, which is to say nothing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. It often happens to people, uh, you know, if it's an experience of people talking to me, or I mean, books, reading books also. If uh, suddenly, if there's a sudden drastic change in their life, mm-hmm. um, the house burns down, or the marriage ends, Mm-hmm. or the child dies, or uh, people suddenly realize the truth mm-hmm. that there's nothing to hold on to, and that the whole thing has been mm-hmm. uh, just futile. Mm-hmm. However, um, if it doesn't come as a path quality, but just out of the blue, often it will start them on the spiritual path, and, and uh, that's the lucky ones. And the unlucky mm-hmm. ones, they uh, spend the rest of their life trying to patch it all up, Mm-hmm. They go crazy. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, it seems like a true realization mm-hmm. that people have, either spontaneously or as path quality. So definitely for me, uh, it was more path quality because I started having it like in the middle of the night or early in the morning, just this terror and the recognition being that nothing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, in some sense, as a path quality, it's, uh, you know, you know it's good news, but on the other hand, it's also quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. So then yesterday, or whenever I spoke with my chemist, she suggested doing this uh, uh, recognizing it as danger. 
So, of course, that, that very afternoon I fell asleep, and I'm waking, I had this feeling again. So immediately I just uh, sort of non-conceptually reflected on this notion of danger, which is simply to say that every, uh, let's say, it wasn't too conceptual, it was just mm -hmm. the notion that the terror was based on true understanding. And uh, it had the remarkable power to relax a little bit. So rather than it being kind of like getting it into a deeper and being a, a sort of heavy mental thing, it just like um, just took me a little bit further in relaxing with the truth of that. And then I remembered a, um, a talk by Rinpoche, which he gave in somehow discussing the life of Noah Repowich, where he actually this um, in <coughs> Milarepa, a certain point in Milarepa's life. And what he described it was, interestingly enough, was as uh, seeing things completely truly, I mean, seeing the truth of things as they are, but still from the point of ego. And so that point of ego may be pretty full grown or might just be a vestige, but in other words, the terror seems to have it. And the recognition of the danger seems to somehow Exactly right. <laughs> That's right. You see, this is one of the things uh, that once you experience these points, you know them. And if you don't, you wonder. <laughs> yes, Trini. Come. Certainly. Uh, she didn't only have an insight into the terror, she had an insight into the cause of the terror, and that's the insight. The insight is that total disillusion of everything is falling apart, there's nothing to hang on to. This is a very deep and very profound insight which caused the terror. And as she looked at the terror and then said, oh yes, well, everything is dangerous and the terror subsided, and she said, yes, this was a true insight that I had. It's true. And the terror was quite uh, justified, but now I don't have it anymore because now I'm accepting the way it is. Uh, am I paraphrasing you correctly? I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the true insight is into the cause of the terror, or seeing the terror as something that has arisen out of something. So that's a true insight, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and also a very important one because it brings you to the verge of a um, uh, what we call change of lineage. <laughs> um, it seems to me, though, that somehow. Um, 
that things also happen out of sequence. Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, that instruction you gave me was, you know, good timing or something. I mean, good know, karma. <laughs> so that the sequence works there. I mean, you could say mm -hmm. like, uh, something like that. But on the other hand, uh, it seems like things happen out of sequence also for all of us. So for instance, this notion of, um, what, what were you calling it, um, disillusion? This, no, dissolution, falling apart? No, uh, disenchantment. Dis dis so, in the conversation I came and I had, that's the same as what we call non-yoga samsara, or revulsion mm. samsara. The, she was saying disenchantment is just easier to... It's a more nicer word. <laughs> but the same as non-yoga yeah. samsara. So in, so, in terms of the sequential thing, that comes uh, at this point, right, after the terror and all. Yeah, seeing the danger, yeah. Yeah, and, but in point of fact, it also happens, it seems like, certainly in uh, uh, a lot of people's cases, it seems to happen uh, long before. Yes, but it comes to its completion at this time. It's complete. It's, uh, it has that, you can't be taken off it anymore. When it happens before, uh, there are so many temptations mm -hmm. that uh, can still take you out of it. And you can know it uh, intellectually a long time before that. Mm -hmm. But these experiences of terror and danger and desire for deliverance and that real deep feeling inside make it then a solid being inside of one without having being able to change that anymore. And this out-of-sequence thing is interesting because it's quite true. But what happens is when you then um, look at it, and go over it and see, well, you know, now I've had this uh, insight and uh, what happened. The others that came before were there, but they weren't recognized. And they were actually there. There's a build-up of them. And you get, all of a sudden, you get something very profound, which was built up on others, which you didn't actually say, oh, well, I had this great insight. It was just something that came along. So it isn't always sort of in a in a very exact way, but ultimately, as we're coming to, this is what happens. Ultimately, now from this point to the next point, this is what happens. So it goes from this disenchantment to the next step then. And here the disenchantment is total. You can't be taken off anymore. I was also thinking, which I think actually you refer to in terms of the fact that there's an inside passage of the jhana state. But for instance, um, in terms of out of sequence, it seems like um, that perhaps you've always worked with inside path or something more like inside path and have had insights. And then um, it occurs to you that it would be helpful have some balance of mm. well being, which the inside path has just been so uh, hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. for some people, I suppose it isn't, but. No, so, no, it's always. So hard. then you might feel that seems also out of sequence, so that you'd mm. work with well being after mm. having already had what seems like more advanced insights or something like that. Yes, yes, that is so quite So then it seems like you're going back, but actually balancing mm. on Yes. Things. Well, you're just combining both ways then. No, that's quite all right. No, it is hard for everyone to go on the pure inside. 
it has a lot of dukkha in it because it's so contrary to everything that we have hung on to and adhered to and tried to do until then. It turns everything upside down. One woman once said to me, I feel like a stocking turned upside down. From inside out, not upside down, inside out. And that's exactly really what it is. So it's always difficult. And that, that balance is very, very helpful. <coughs>